Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 23rd, 2018. No theme today. That's generally how Fridays go. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying Instead of the Word of God, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward by these people for consumption by Christian consumers, which I think is part of the problem, uh, is far from what God's Word says. It doesn't even remotely come close to what Scripture reveals or teaches, and people are not being discipled in, uh, in Scripture in any kind of a meaningful way. In fact, it's quite... The contrary, very different than that. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, Note, again, no theme today, and there is always a theme to uh, Fighting for the Faith unless I say otherwise. If I say otherwise, there's no theme. So (laughs) it's kind of the idea, and I know a lot of you like to figure it out. It could be an apologetic theme. It could be an epistemological theme. It could be a doctrinal theme. Uh, Over and again, I try to get all of our horses pulling in the same direction so that uh, you uh, learn discernment over the course of listening to the program over a period of time. But today, no theme. So uh, we're going to start off with a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. You know, that Robert Henderson fellow I with, on the Patricia King segment we recently did just piqued my interest, and I actually found him preaching a sermon called Breaking Curses Legal Rights. And uh, <laughs> so we're going to listen to part of that sermon just because. I mean, I, it's one of these things like, who is this guy and where is he teaching? And comes to come to find out, he's kind of like on the charismatic NAR circle as a... Uh, 
as a guest speaker for your church, and uh, this is somebody you don't want teaching at your church, best way I can put it. Um, then uh, we're going to do an emergent update. We're going to uh, check in with Steve Chalk, and uh, this is a fellow who's uh, you know kind of a holdover of the emergent church movement in the United Kingdom, and he's literally going to make the argument that the Bible is driving down church attendance, mm-hmm, that the Bible is. And <laughs> so here... Is your church shrinking? Well, it's the Bible that's causing that. And uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take some issue with what Stephen Chalk says. And uh, we'll take a break after that. When we come back from the break, we're going to check in with uh, Benny Hinn and Lance Wall now. This will be our first installment of this uh, now that uh, Billy Graham has passed away. Uh, there are people literally taking to the YouTube uh, airways. Is that the right way of putting it? Well, I guess it does go over Wi-Fi. So there. <laughs> it works. Uh, <laughs> who are <laughs> taking to the Internet and uh, claiming that uh, Billy Graham's death is, uh, is a sign of uh, – uh, it's a prophetic sign of things to come. And I think it was back, oh, man, was it 2012, 2013? Billy Graham wasn't in good health back then. And um, Benny Hinn was on it and claiming that uh, Billy Graham's death combined with Oral Roberts's death was going to be the sign of something um, you know, prophetic significant happening. So that will be the second half of the program today. And I'm actually going to record that. And... Uh, as a as a video segment and make it available on our YouTube channel so uh, yeah, for easy sharing. And uh, then in hour number two, since it's Friday, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And the first is titled, Jesus' First Sign. I picked this one because it's on the Gospel of John, Chapter 2, uh, the story, the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, and I just wanted you to have a comparison point to what we heard from Eric Dykstra yesterday. Um, <laughs> yeah, the secret sauce to making your marriage the best ever is to invite Jesus into it. <laughs> now, now, granted, you know, a Christ-centered, uh, a Christ-centered marriage between two Christians is is really what Scripture calls for. But that's kind of not the point. <laughs> <laughs> that text. So uh, we'll hear how Pastor Wolfmuller handles it, and then uh, we'll we'll round it out by adding another one uh, on uh, the Transfiguration of Christ. And the name of the sermon is "Radiant in His Divinity." So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover since we're going to start with the prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Let's do this. So I was having this wedding, and and we had, we well we didn't have we Shabbat, mm, Shabbat Sunday, yeah 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 Shabbat, oh <laughs> Shabbat, Shabbat, wow Shabbat Sunday. Yeah, I just can't believe it's true. 
So uh, we're going to head over to, uh, let's see, the name of the church is Catch the Fire Toronto. Oh, we're heading over to the Toronto church there. Uh, formerly known as the Toronto Vineyard. And uh, when the Toronto so-called blessing arrived in the 90s with the laughing revival and all the chicanery that went along with that and Rodney Howard Brown, uh, John and Carol are not lost the right to, uh, you know, to continue as a vineyard church. John Wimber himself <clears throat> showed up to give them the left foot of fellowship. So <laughs> just a little charismatic history there for you. But uh, so Robert Henderson uh, recently preached there at the Toronto Airport Church. And, uh, yeah, I just my curiosity was piqued. So, I mean, this guy's making the charismatic rounds. He was recently on Patricia King's program. So uh, let's listen in to Robert Henderson as he explains to us how, you know, God wants things to happen for you and stuff. But, you know, the devil's filing lawsuits up in heaven. To block you from things. Mm-hmm. Listen in. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's a great honor, honor again to be back and be a part, small part, of what God's doing here. I'm so excited about it. I've enjoyed um, meeting and ministering and fellowshipping with quite a few. And so, uh, thank you so much for having me here this weekend. And. Uh, uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to do what <laughs> so often I do. I want to talk to you about an element concerning the courts of heaven. How many of you were here this weekend? Now, a little bit of a note. Um, if this was something we needed to know about the courts in heaven and you know how to overcome frivolous lawsuits filed by the devil, then God's word would explain this to us. And so uh, this is a fellow who has gone against and literally gone against what Scripture teaches explicitly for Christians, that we are not to go beyond what is written. And uh, he's gone way beyond that. I heard me teach on the courts of heaven. Oh, so there's quite a few. How many of you, other than that, how many of you have ever heard me teach on the court of heaven? Okay, so it's everybody that's sitting toward the front. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to talk more about that. And let me just, for the for sake of explaining it briefly to everyone, uh, when we talk about the court of heaven, Jesus put prayer in three dimensions in the book of Luke. He put it approaching God as Father. He put it in approaching God as friend. But then he put it in Luke 18 of approaching God as judge. And that is the judicial system of heaven where we... St- oh, yeah. See, because he put stuff in the relationship as judge. So, the, you know, there. This is nonsense. Let me read out the text I was referring to, by the way. You can find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, Mr. Henderson here has gone not only beyond what is written, he's careened over a cliff and is literally heading into the abyss and next stop, the lake of fire. I mean, that's how far beyond Scripture and what is written he's gone. Before God and deal with legal issues in the spirit that would stop us from getting what God has for us. 
How many know when Jesus died on the cross, He made provision for anything and everything we we have need of? Second Peter chapter one uh, says that all things that pertain to life and godliness have already been given to us. Amen. You're twisting that text. So why don't we have it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because we haven't learned how to file counter lawsuits against the lawsuits of the devil. Because sometimes there's something legal in the spirit realm that's resisting us. For instance, when Jesus died on the cross, that was the greatest legal transaction of history. That's what the cross is. It was a legal transaction. As, as Patricia was saying, that it was a trade. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He took sickness that we might be healed. And he actually took poverty so we could be rich. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> so Jesus took poverty on the cross so that we can be rich. Oh no, this this guy is Oh, he's a charlatan. This this, <laughs> this fellow's selling tin pennies, you know, and stuff. Wow. And many other things. And so it was a legal transaction that when we by faith enter into that with him, we get the benefits of everything he did for us. Right, including wealth cuz you know Jesus atoned for poverty. <sighs> The enemy comes through different scenarios to, to, to build legal cases against us that do not allow us to get the full benefit of everything Jesus died for us to get. So Says no biblical text anywhere. Again, let, let me point this out here. Um, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scripture explicitly commands us in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, to not go beyond what is written. We have to learn how to approach God, not just as our Father, as important as that is, not just as our friend, but also as uh, the judge that in that place, in the spirit realm, we can get everything legally in place so that we get the full benefit of everything Jesus died for us to have. Nowhere in Scripture am I told that I have to go to spiritual law school. Good night. Man, sound like a pretty good... No, I cannot say amen to this. This is absurd. Doesn't it? You know, I was really blessed by what Patricia was saying because because um, I had a dream. It's been a few years now, but I... Oh, yeah. So how did he get this? Because he had a dream. Yeah, so this has got to be real, man. No, this is... This guy has not had a prophetic dream. He didn't get this from God or the Holy Spirit. He is going on about what his sensual mind would go on about. But the one source I can say definitively he didn't get this from was God. Dream where that I was sitting on an airplane in first class. Now, I, I do get to ride up in first class because I have so many miles that usually domestically in America, I get upgraded. So I'm, I'm pretty common being in first class just through upgrade. Don't pay for it. We just get upgraded into it. And, and so um, I was in my dream. I was sitting in first class and the flight attendant called my name. And when she called my name, she said, uh, I needed to come forward. So I got up and I said, I'm Robert Henderson. And she said, you've been upgraded. And she said, and I thought, where am I going? I'm in first class. <laughs> and she said, you've been upgraded. And I suddenly was aware that this was a double-decker plane. 
And she said, you've been upgraded into a suite in the upper deck and you've been upgraded into suite 243. Now, the moment she said suite 243 in the dream, the Holy Spirit in the dream said Acts 243. So how many of you would get up the next morning and go, go get your Bible and see what Acts 243 says? <laughs> so I did. I got up, I got my Bible, and it says that, that the fear of the Lord was upon them all, and many signs and wonders were done through the hands of the apostles. And the Lord said to me, I am upgrading you into apostolic signs and wonders. Oh, wow. So he's uh, basically claiming apostolic authority and signs and wonders. He's saying he's been upgraded to being an apostle. Can you say N-A-R? I'm upgrading you into those dimensions. See, I believe we are in a season of upgrade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Season of upgrade, man. Yeah, because, you know, he got upgraded in a dream and stuff. Good night. I believe that God is wanting to upgrade us. Just like Patricia said, upgrade us into all sorts of dimensions. The new dimensions that God has seen. See, he wants to get us unstuck out of where we have been and move us into the fullness of everything he died for us to have. Uh -huh. So I need your extra biblical teaching in order to make that happen. I don't think so. Now... Here's the problem. One of the reasons, and maybe even the main reason we're stuck, watch this, is there's something legal working against us. Yeah, again, biblical text, please. Because, see, here's what many people experience. It's like they've got a bungee cart on their back. And it's like they're trying to move forward, and all the time they're trying to pull forward, it feels like something's pulling them back. Anybody ever feel, know what I'm talking about? And it seemed like you're really trying with all sorts of effort to get into the fullness of what God has for you. But, but there's something pulling you back. I want you to know that God wants to cut the bungee cord. He really wants to. Yeah, because you're experiencing bungee cord setback syndrome. So what do we need to do in order for God to cut the bungee cord, dude? He wants, to, he wants to break that legal thing that the enemy is using that's trying to keep you out of the fullness of destiny that Jesus has for you. Now, this is total malarkey. Let me tell you what that bungee card is in many situations. It's called curses. Oh, no. Not a curse. See, one of the things that keeps us out of the upgrade... That God has for us is there something that, that's very real in the spirit realm that the Bible calls curses. And so I want to talk to you about curses. Now, before I move into them, here's what I want you to hear. Curses at their core are legal. Curses can only... Op yeah, by the way, since he's the inventor of this doctrine, he gets to make all the rules regarding it. <laughs> okay, so curses, they're all legal. I don't have a biblical text that says so, but I'm, since I made this doctrine up, I can just make up anything I want about it. So they're totally legal. I hope you go to... Uh, the spiritual law school. In fact, I'm setting up a spiritual law school on the internet, and it's only $2,000 a year to attend. And it takes five years for you to become a spiritual attorney. <laughs> yeah, you see how the game works. ...against us and our family because they have discovered a legal right to operate. So here's the issue. If you'll get the legal right dealt with of that curse then it will be removed and you'll be able to fully come into everything Jesus died for you. Uh, man. So apparently uh, it, God wants to, you know, give you everything that Jesus died for, including wealth. 
um, so you can be rich. But you, you see, you, you, you have to become a spiritual attorney. This is just complete and utter nonsense. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra conducted by Doug Padgett. Special guest today playing the bassoon is Stephen Schock. This is their rendition of also Sprock Zarathustra. They have been set free from the modernist definitions of notes and are just being guided by the spirit. That's the spirit guiding them there. Let's listen in as they build to their awe-inspiring avant-garde crescendo here. you just feel the spirit all over that man oh the atmosphere has totally changed and stuff i can feel legal curses being lawsuited out of existence and stuff <laughs> yay <laughs> All right, so uh, Stephen Schock has been inspired by Martin Luther's uh, 95 Theses, and uh, and he's part of the Open Church Network and has been releasing videos. His intention is to release 95 of them himself, and Shock Talks are what they're called. Shock Talk number 9 is his uh, way of explaining to us that the reason why your church isn't growing is because of the Bible. Yeah, it's because of the Bible. Let's let Stephen Schock explain. According to the Church Times of the 19th of October 2017, the average worshipping community of a Church of England, which includes all those who are part of a service, either on a Sunday or during the week, whether they attend every week or just once a month, is now estimated to stand at only 1.1 million people. That's just 2% of the country's population. The Church of England has lost around two-thirds of its members in the last 30 years. Mm, What could possibly be the cause of that? Now, I'm going to note that for the past 30 years, the Church of England has been one of the most liberal denominations on planet Earth. And uh, always and again, we are told that liberalism and their way of understanding scripture and nonsense like that will lead to church growth because we are told it's an emergency. The church, in order to survive, has got to get rid of all of its really abhorrent doctrines that people just find irrelevant and just so mean-spirited and stuff. This is what we <clears throat> over and again hear. And that's pretty much where we're going to hear from uh, Steve Schock. As he explains to us how we got to go further, we got to get rid of even more of the Bible. Mm-hmm. William Nye, Secretary General of the Archbishop's Council, commented that these figures are a sobering reminder of our long term challenge. 
But this decline, alongside our inability to hold on to even those who at first enthusiastically embrace whatever form of church they choose to join, is, as we all know, not simply a C of E issue. You can soak it in bright lights and well-rehearsed bands with smooth-talking preachers, or drape it in mystery, investments, incense and smoke. But, denials and cover-ups aside, none of it is working. The way I see it... No, no, the way he sees it. Yeah, we've got to take some radical measures here, folks. The Bible's got to go. That's literally what he's going to argue. Underlying issue, which is the erosion of confidence in the authority of the Bible that we're witnessing across our globalist society, just isn't being addressed. Right, yeah, this whole idea of the authority of Scripture, the globalist society, is just not not having that. No, no. So we, we, we need to listen to the globalists. The problem isn't that people haven't read the Bible or haven't heard it. Rather, it's that they have read enough of it to be sure that they don't want to read anymore. So we got to get rid of it, man. It's got to go. We just got to get rid of the Bible. I mean, what are we thinking? I mean, we, we can find something better to disciple people with. And who needs biblical doctrines? We can just make make stuff up. We could tell them, you know, what they want to hear and things, and then the church will grow like the seeker-driven, purpose-driven guys, which are already doing that. Hmm. And equally, it's clear that large sections of the church have also misunderstood and misinterpreted the Bible as well. The- oh, no. There's all kinds of misinterpretations of the Bible and stuff. Oh, gasp. Oh, no. I. How much do you want to bet that people have misinterpreted the Bible by saying, you know, homosexuality is a sin and stuff like that? How much do you want to bet? We know the enormous good that the church does. We keep on bumping into the fact that through the centuries, the poor interpretation of the Bible has been used to justify some of the most inhumane, brutal, and oppressive episodes in human history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So now, no, uh, one of the major premises of fighting for the faith is that there are a bunch of people out there who are literally twisting God's word and deceiving people. I have no problem saying that there have been some episodes in history that Christians were motivated to do abhorrent things by a leader who was twisting and mangling God's word, which is why we teach sound biblical hermeneutics and good exegesis as part of our discernment ministry here at Fighting for the Faith, so that you can understand what Scripture says and reveals so that you don't end up, say, end up in the other ditch. Yeah, which is where Stephen Shock is, by the way. But what's harder to face up to is that still, today, still. it's regularly used to oppose the use of condoms, the teaching of evolutionary biology. <laughs> oh, no! The Bible's being used to oppose evolutionary biology? Well, the reason for that is simple. There is no scientific evidence for evolutionary biology. None whatsoever. 
And Scripture reveals that we are created. We're not the products of random chance, a survival of the fittest over a long period of time. This is just, that, that's just necessary stuff here. People of other faiths, human rights, women's rights. Oh, yeah, no, no women pastors either. See, the Bible's been used to oppress women from being pastrixes and stuff. <gasps> yes, yeah, see, you know rights <laughs> and this is to name just a few here's my point people vote with their feet bad theology costs credibility it- mm, yeah so give the world what they want or they're going to not come to your church you see people are already born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with god yeah trust and membership it also costs, tragically, lives. Like That's right. People will die if you don't get rid of the Bible. Explained. In my view, the answer to all this is really quite simple. You don't have to be a scholar to understand that the New Testament is clear. God is love. Put differently, any belief, attitude, policy or doctrine that damages or rejects or excludes or asks us to assassinate our God-given brains in order to believe just can't be from God. Right. So anything that doesn't jive with your understanding of what love is, that just can't be from God. Yeah. Um, so he note he's twisting the Bible in order to you know pretty much get rid of the Bible. There's a shock. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, he's a kind of a holdover from the emergent church movement. And unfortunately, too many people are still listening to him. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to look at our first look at these ideas that uh, the death of Billy Graham is somehow a prophetic sign. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. (laughs) Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that liberals who 
want to reinterpret the Bible through their understanding of love rather than what's revealed, well, they're dangerous. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Actually, there's three. And then the third one, the new one, says become a patron. Almost landed on my feet on that one. Anyway, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. There are four ranks in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to support us via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button, or you can click on the Donate button. Fill that all out if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Oh, hallelujah. So the death of uh, Billy Graham has occurred, and now all of the prophecy wingnuts and televangelists are coming out of the woodwork to remind us that supposedly the death of Billy Graham uh, has significant end times significance. <laughs> Did I say significant too many times? Let's uh, take a look first with um, Benny Hinn, and uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to jump around a little bit, but let's listen into him first. The Lord spoke to me very clearly, very powerfully, in fact, back then. Yeah. That when Oral Roberts and Billy Graham go home, that would be the beginning of the greatest revival in church history. Mm, the beginning of the greatest revival in church history. Now, I need to remind people here that the New Apostolic Reformation and the latter reign have infiltrated uh, much of the charismatic movement. And so if you've heard teachings regarding Joel's army, uh, Gideon's army, the Joshua generation, and things like that, then you're going to note that uh, you've been taught that there's supposedly this billion souls harvest thingy that's coming. And uh, Benny Hinn has set claims that he was told by God that uh, that the death of Oral Roberts and Billy Graham would be the sign of that imminent event, um, which is not 
prophesied in Scripture. Nope. And uh, instead, it's a prophecy coming out of the latter rain in the NAR. And uh, Oral went to be home with the Lord a few years ago. Oral was my pastor. He was actually in this building many times. Did many This Is Your Day programs with me and uh, was my dearest, closest friend. I would go to his home because he lived not far from where we are right now, down by Fashion Island here. And uh, I, I would go sometimes take food with Suzanne and, and just spend time with him. And, and then he went home to be with the Lord after Evelyn had gone. And now Billy is home with the Lord. So uh, this, is, this is an amazing time. Uh, think about this, uh, dear Jim and dear people, that this is Israel's 70th birthday. That just be- Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because Billy Graham died same time that the nation state of Israel will celebrate its 70th birthday. I mean, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, that doesn't prove anything. And by the way, um, Benny Hinn's a false prophet. We've documented that. I mean, he said Fidel Castro would die in the 1990s. That didn't happen. You know, that San Francisco would be destroyed and things like that didn't happen. He's a false prophet. And this January, last January, and May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation. So May 14 of this year will be exactly 70 years. And amazingly, I'm going to be there preaching that night in Jerusalem. Pastor Chris. Mm, Yeah, so, you know, I don't know what he's up to, but that's tame. That's tame. I mean, so he's made this overt claim that the, some sign regarding a billion souls harvest thingy uh, will, you know, will be brought about. You know, you know, it's close if Billy Graham and Oral Roberts are both dead, and that's now happened. Now, let me switch this up just a little bit here, and uh, we're going to be checking in with Lance Walnow. And I, in order to prepare for this, I had to kind of chop his video up into a couple of segments and open it up in different tabs here. But uh, backing it up to the beginning of this video, Lance Walnow is like all over this story. And what he ends up saying is just bonafide Looney Tunes. And let me remind you that Lance Walnow is the guy who was commanding hurricanes to veer off of the coast of Florida and the Bahamas and stuff. And all of his commanding and controlling of hurricanes resulted in none of that happening and those hurricanes hitting all of their targets. In fact, I was saying that uh, if you are watching Lance Wall now and he's commanding a hurricane not to come towards your region, flee for your life because your house is probably going to be destroyed. But we uh, check in with Lance Wall now here to see what he has to say regarding the death of Billy Graham, which is just, and it just gets crazier with each minute that passes. But let's listen in. My friends out there in Facebookian land, and uh, I just wanted to comment on the Billy Graham prophecy. I want to read to you something, which uh, is the Kim Clement prophecy, 2006. Yeah, Kim Clement has uh, passed away. He had brain cancer, if I'm not mistaken, passed away a while ago. The Spirit of God says, even as Billy Graham dies, I'm going to raise up two of him. 
I will raise up two billion. God's going to raise up two billigrams. Okay. Grams, says the Lord. God said, your soil surrendered him to me, and so shall your soil receive him. For the Spirit of God says, I will raise up two men. No, wait, one man and one woman again from this soil. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not buying it. And God said evangelism shall take place through the news media and the arts and in the business arena. How does evangelism occur through the arts? Somebody is doing ballet and they have Jesus is Lord in the eye black under their eyes. Ballerinas don't wear eye black. What are you talking about? I'm going to cause my servant Billy Graham to come into the place that he has spoken of all his life. The Spirit of God says, I will receive my servant, Graham. And God says, there will be a graduation. Everything he spoke about, he shall experience. Do not be sad, for in the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Um, what are you doing here? In the day that this king dies, Billy Graham, and yes, he is a king. So- Billy Graham's a king. I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> we need to make sure that he gets a, a you know a royal state funeral or something like that. The Lord Billy Graham. In the day that he dies, the eyes of the prophets shall see the Lord high and lifted up. The prophetic, the prophetic shall indeed gain a new dimension of insight and sight. Please do not be sad, people. God says when King Billy Graham dies, there shall be a new level of sight and dimension of sight that the body of Christ has never, ever seen. Do not. Isn't dimension of sight one of those phrases that came from the twilight zone? Hey, but is he in this denomination or isn't he that? God said two shall be raised up who shall become two nations and forces, forces. Excuse me. And those that shall come from the world shall thank you, and they shall say thank you. Now, I got a really exciting uh, word for you on Billy Graham. You do, yeah. Because I should believe you after the whole you were not able to command and control hurricanes thing. So I'm going to give you a second chance now, and this time you'll get it right. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's not how that works. I'm not going to deliver it yet. No. I'm going to let Benny Hinn, Benny Hinn. share this. Now, this must be from two. Yeah, a guy who's also been shown to be a false prophet. Because mm. right when Kim prophesied this, uh, I see a, 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 a young Benny Hinn and Mark Sharona uh, suddenly... Uh, on a TBN broadcast, and I want to play this for you. And it's kind of, you know, it's it's a ghastly YouTube of a television program. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But we don't care about that. No. We don't judge it. No. We watch it. We, we don't judge it. We watch it, man, you know. Eat the meat. Spit the bones. Yeah. Let me see if I can get this for you here. Hang now, on. what I'm going to do, I'm going to actually go to that YouTube video, and I'm going to play it. And uh, we're going to do it because this is the audio here is a little bit better because <laughs> it's second hand on this edition, but it's third hand on Lance Wall now. So the, the audio just plummets horrifically. 
So uh, here's um, Benny Hinn on TBN. You're going to note that Paul Crouch was still alive when this was broadcast. And Mark Sharona and Benny Hinn are the main characters in this one. And listen in as Mark Sharona is literally prophesying that that there's this coming generation of miraculous people. This is the NAR doctrine of the Joshua generation or Joel's army or the episode we did recently on Fighting for the Faith called the One New Man Prophecy. And so this is Sharona spewing that out on TBN. And then Benny Hinn literally jumping in on top of this and saying that the sign will be the death of Billy Graham. But he's not going to say it in this first cut that we give because we're, we're trying to sync it with uh, what Lance Wallnow was saying. But here we go. And what you just said is so right on. But you've got a little more in you. I can see it. Well, uh, no, I, I, I defer to you. But I can see it all over you. We, we, are, we are coming into perhaps the most significant day in church history. And there are a number of things that are going to begin to converge. When you talked about Luke and the signs, yeah. there's going to be a convergence of the signs. And with it... There is going to you, be a, you, you're talking about an acceleration. An acceleration, and they're all going to overlap. An acceleration of signs and stuff. Okay. And when that happens, there is a company of people. That are you hearing this? There you go. The company of people. This is the NAR and Lateran doctrine of Joel's army, the Gideon's army, the Joshua generation, the one new man prophecy. It goes by many different names, but it's the same thing. This idea that God's going to raise up uh, this generation of people who can operate in the supernatural, like you know, like you and I breathe or like fish swim. When it happens, there's a company of people that have been hidden in God for a season, but they're coming out of hiding, and they're going to stand in the courts of Pharaoh. And they're going to challenge the spirits like Elijah, like Elijah yeah. did, like like Moses did. Yeah. They are going to challenge the powers of Egypt. Amen. And the earth is going to see a 21st century manifestation of the demonstration of the spirit. Not from one or two, but from a many-membered body. God is going Amen. to have Amen. the church Amen. of his dreams. All the- yeah, God's going to finally have the church of his dreams, which means... Those of you who haven't been doing this, I mean, you are a big letdown to God. <laughs> Consider the implications of what he just said. Institutionalizing we've done to the church, all the things we've done to try to make it our thing instead of God's thing. God has had the church under wraps for 2,000 years. Maybe that's why there's 2,000 cubits between where this generation is and the ark. Because God wants a church that's been hiding and prepared for power by severe tests, severe trial, severe tribulation, every single season... And they feel like they're not going to be used, and it's too late, and it's all over. And that's the company that's prepared for power. They've been like John the Baptist in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey. They've been eating locusts. (laughs) Kind of glad I'm not part of that, that group. 
food. They've had to learn how to glean from the word when they were just getting little pious platitudes from preachers all around the country. And they're being weaned away from everything that is contradictory to the powerful truth of the word of God. And that company is coming out of hiding. They're going to cross Jordan and they're going to move into a manifestation of power where there won't just be power on one or two. There's going to be power on multiplied thousands and... Yeah, so this is a Moving a manifestation of power. Now, Benny Hinn's about to blurt something out here, but uh, let's check back in with uh, Lance Wall now uh, because we'll pick it up from about the part where he he dropped it there. They're going to cross Jordan, and they're going to move into a manifestation of power. All right, now I'm going to go back to this in a second. But it's only three minutes long, but it seems longer. They're going to cross over Jordan now. In a moment, Benny Hinn's going to say the sign that this prophecy is going to happen is when Billy Graham dies. That was in 2006. I think a lot of people thought he was going to go earlier than that. But he went all the way to 99. Now, So all the way back in 2006, they were saying this. Billy Graham was unique as an evangelist. Now, remember this. When Elijah died, as he went up, his mantle came down on Elisha. Elijah uh, is a type of, um, let's just say that when, when great mantle saints go up, they release. Mantle saints. Great mantle saints. Oh, man. Something into the earth. This doesn't happen with every saint. I, I see Christians tra- you know, running around after everybody's mantle. Forget that. But there are certain ones that do care. And forget the whole grave sucking that Bethel does, too. Yeah, you can't suck someone's mantle. It's weird that he's saying that because Benny Hinn claims to have a mantle. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got that mantle from Catherine Kuhlman. He claims to have it. It's weird. You know, just, just saying Apparently, Catherine Kuhlman was a mantle saint. Mantles. Elijah was a prototype. And, and Billy Graham clearly had a, a mantle on him. And the proof of that was that he had gone over to 100 and, uh, 185 nations he had preached in. He was different than other evangelists because he was actually the governmental evangelist. He was one of the few men of God who met with presidents and heads of state. Remember when Russia wanted to... Pr- so, see, that proves. Because, you know, he met with the president. That means he has, you know, a mantle thingy. Well, that would mean that Kent Copeland has a mantle. Paula White has a mantle. Rick Warren has a mantle. No scripture talks this way. Where it says, you can tell that somebody's got a mantle if they meet with a head of state. Was open to democracy. They wanted Billy Graham to come because he was a symbolic governmental evangelist. He's the statesman evangelist, and we have not seen this since uh, now. Billy Graham's mantle of the statesman evangelist is about to be released upon the body of Christ. Of the statesman mantle, mantle. It's going to be released. Mm-hmm. I'm not buying it. This is the guy who couldn't even turn away a hurricane by commanding and controlling it. You know. 
There are. And I just was on a phone call right now because I'm getting ready to, to go over into Eastern Europe and Slovakia and Prague. And I'm asking the Lord, why am I in England? Why am I in these places? And the Lord said, because he's raising up sheep nations. Now catch this. This is, this is a kind of- the, the Lord is raising up sheep nations. What's a sheep nation? Complicated thought, but I, but you guys are going to get it. Okay. The United States as an economy, Satan wanted to take it down. But God put Trump in so that the American uh, role in the world could be preserved and extended longer. And the nations that are the weaker nations and the churches around the world that are weaker can get stronger to occupy their governmental sphere. America To occupy their governmental sphere. Lance Wallnow, by the way, NAR guy, who, who teaches the Seven Mountain Dominion Mandate, NAR style, yeah. $20 trillion dollar. Uh, GDP nation. The only closest rival we have to ourselves is China, but China's only $11 trillion. And then uh, underneath that, you have Japan at $4.8 trillion. And then it's uh, Germany with three point four. And then So it- I'm getting a lesson in economics because Billy Graham had the statesman mantle, and when mantle saints ascend, their mantle drops. And this has something to do with the U.S. economy. What? On Earth, with two point five two compared to twenty trillion, why has God given America the ability to have that level of strength? It's to maintain the global order from the globalists who are trying to termite that system down. For it's like a demonic desire to smash this Western civilization and create a whole new game plan where power is going to be redistributed. And <laughs> I had no idea that all of this was going on because of the death of Billy Graham. God put a veto on Satan's plan and sent a wrecking ball with a Cyrus anointing into the White House to begin to dismantle that spirit of manipulated mind control and political correctness. And right now, the Billy Graham anointing is coming upon a new generation of believers. And listen. So notice what he just said. The Billy Graham anointing is coming on a new generation. So apparently that mantle's falling on a whole generation of people. Yet Ken Clement, in his so-called prophecy regarding Billy Graham, said that Billy Graham's mantle would fall on a man and a woman, singular in each case, two people. Hmm. Yeah, notice that uh, these uh, prophecies regarding the significance of the death of Billy Graham, they contradict themselves. I'm prophesying this. Heads of states are going to open up their doors to the gospel. And I'll tell you why. We hold a $20 trillion position, China $11 trillion, And then I said, like, you know, um, underneath that is like Japan with $4 trillion. There are 170 nations in the world right now. Remember, Billy Graham went to 184. 170 that have less than a trillion dollar currency. So What? I'm telling you, something's going to happen. God is going to... Yeah, something always happens. What do you mean something's going to happen? Notice the vagaries here. Yeah, something. Something's going to happen. Don't know what, but something, you know. 
to the least, the last, the lost, and the little. It's like David was raised up in the tribes of Judah. Jesus came out of, um, out of Nazareth and out of Bethlehem. Cities that were not the great consequential cities. In these nations, these smaller nations, there are, I believe, at least 140 of them are going to have serious shakings that are going to produce principled leaders like Cyrus. Serious shakings. Principled Cyrus leaders will come flooding out of that. All of this because Billy Graham died. Uh-huh. Well, not Christians necessarily, but the Christians in those nations that have been praying are going to come into influence with their Cyrus leaders, and the Cyrus leaders are going to align themselves, and they're going to be favorably disposed towards the strength of the American economy, and Donald Trump's faith and outspoken um, support of Jesus Christ has authorized something for the Billy Graham statesman mantle to go... This guy is Looney Tunes. So because Donald Trump has publicly confessed Jesus, that's authorized the statesman mantle of Billy Graham thingy. This is utter nonsense. None of this is taught in Scripture, and this is not Christian discipleship. These people, I mean, seriously, have they been sniffing glue? Open up arenas and stadiums and coliseums around the world where emerge... Maybe he's been... A victim of the Tide Pod Challenge. You know, it's, it's a possibility here. New leaders are going to align with the gospel and they're going to allow Christians to preach the gospel and there's going to be a great global harvest and nations are going to come to the knowledge of the Lord. And this is happening during this time period of the shaking that's going on in the United States. And I'm tell- of the shaking, because he's telling us and he's wagging his fingers and he's saying shifting and shaking and Cyrus and stuff. Yeah. Uh. That's what's coming. Now let's go back to our uh, Mark Sharona prophecy. They cross over Jordan. And the t- yeah, cross over Jordan, by the way. You heard uh, Mark Sharona talk about this generation crossing over Jordan. I think that might have something to do with the Phil Pringle sermon that we recently listened to where he mangled the scriptures. So let me, um, let me just go back just a smidge, and I'm going to back this up so that we can – Hear it in context as Mark Sharona is talking about this generation that's coming up. Benny Hinn's about to chime in and then literally say that, you know, that the sign's going to be the death of Billy Graham. So let's hear it back in context again. Station of power where there won't just be power on one or two. There's going to be power on multiplied thousands and, and thousands. And may I, may I add, the sign will be Billy Graham's death. Wow. <laughs> No, no, I'm being raw here. You are talking about a people in hiding, just like Elijah was in hiding in Cherith. Right. right. But when he came out, he challenged the prophets of Exactly. Went right into the courts. Right there. And the Lord's the same spirits. Boy, exactly. Those are the same principalities. And the Lord said to me in 89. Sorry, yeah, 89. He said, when Otto Roberts and Billy Graham go home, will be the key. Wow. It'll be the sign of the beginning of the greatest revival on earth. Wow. Oral is home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Billy is about to go home. Yeah. And when he does, I'm telling <laughs> He's about to go home. <laughs> when was this? Billy, uh, you know, let's see. The, you know, Paul Crouch is looking pretty young there. Yeah, this is way back in, what, 2006? Old church, get ready. <laughs> Paul, can we go there? Yeah, get ready, get ready. 
So coming out of that, then uh, I'll just play this little bit from uh, Lance Wall now where he literally is going to uh, you know, j- transition into playing the very last message that Billy Graham ever gave, uh, which was a video, a short video message uh, posted on his ministry's website. But uh, let's listen to the intro. I'll skip over the Billy Graham uh, you know, video, and then we'll then listen as Lance Wildnow tries to explain to us the the prophetic significance of all oh, what all of this means. Get ready, and you got to hear Billy Graham's last message to America. All right, so he's going to say, "Get ready," and so that he's transitioning. So this is him finishing up now, watching that Billy Graham video. It's a confrontation. Must face. So this is a, an ep, epic moment for the body of Christ. When I was up here at Caris Bible College yesterday and I was looking out at uh, like 800 students. And it's interesting because most of them are like over 40. It's a different kind of a school. And I was impacted uh, by the, the realization that these are adults that are seeking the call of God. They want to maximize the remainder of their life to bring forth fruit. And I said, how interesting it is that here we are. And Billy Graham just passed. Some of them gasped because they hadn't heard the news yet. But in his passing, I could see clearly that there was a, there was a, a, there was a Elijah-type transaction and something coming down. And I'm praying for you. And me. You saw an Elijah transaction and then something coming down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This guy sounds like he needs to be institutionalized. Now, that we are going to be receptive to the fresh thing that God is doing. We're going to move. We got to be receptive to the fresh thing because the, the, the billion souls harvest thingy is coming. The one new man is about to emerge from hiding. Yeah. New thing that God is doing. We are going to be bold and we're going to be outspoken regarding the truth, but we're going to be winsome and filled with the spirit and filled with the love of God. We're going to be able to uh, see a fresh day of courage confronting error and lies and deception. And the spirit of the Lord is going to be giving an expansion of the prophetic insight, as Kim said, that we will begin to see the crossing over of Jordan. And as he said, it's in business and it's in arts and it's in entertainment. And I believe that many of you have been wondering what it is you're called to do in the next season. You're called to go in and take territory, occupy. You're called- you got to take territory now. You got to occupy, you know, because Billy Graham. Whatever. Advance. There are a, there are Esthers who have to have permission to be covert until the time that they're unveiled. To what? What on earth? And there are the um, and there are the Mordecais that are out there that are actually right now helping other people achieve their destiny. And every one of you is important in the process. America is shaking, and but uh, the Spirit of the Lord is not letting America go because there is yet a purpose and a destiny that must be fulfilled, and a and we must be stable as a nation so that the world order that wants to tear apart can be held together long enough for the. Um, dormant, latent potential of the body of Christ to be activated, not just to build bigger churches and have more ministries, uh, multiplying followers, but to see the ordinary believer become an extraordinary 
influence within the sphere of God that they're assigned to, so that major cities and and these and these uh, 150 or 60 some nations are going to be having a witness of the gospel of the kingdom. And that means it's going to be more than just the uh, the the soul winning move of God. It's going to be a move of God that is going to alter economies. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Not just blessed is the person. Blessed is the nation. And we've got to live right now in the tension of uh, the fact that we have not pushed the issue that Christ is not just for a soul. He's for a city and he's for a nation. And these nations that are going to turn to the Lord are going. Oh, man, like enough already. Enough. Now, what do we do with something like this? Number one, neither Jesus nor the apostles gave the death of Billy Graham as a sign regarding the end times. No, it's not in Scripture. And we would be wise to pay attention to what Christ did say when he warned us about what would be coming in the end times. Matthew chapter 24 is what where I'm looking at here. And let's read this out, and we'll then cross-reference it with a portion of Second Thessalonians. So Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He answered them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now you're going to note that they conflated these two things. Uh, Jesus' second coming in the end of the age with the destruction of the temple. Jesus doesn't care to correct them, and so he gives information in the Olivet Discourse that pertains to both his second coming as well as the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple in some ways then serves as kind of type and shadow for the coming day of judgment and Jesus' imminent return. And here's what Jesus said regarding the last days. And by the way, Jesus truly could tell the future, and none of his words have ever fallen to the ground, not even one, and he is none other than the Son of God in human flesh. First thing out of the gate regarding the end times, he said, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Greek word for Christ there is Christos, and its Hebrew equivalent is Messiah, Mashiach. And so beware, because first thing, false Christ, false anointed Ones. And we're going to note that men like Lance Wallnau and others in the New Apostolic Reformation, holdovers and you know those influenced by the latter reign and people in the charismatic movement as a whole, the, over and again they're talking about anointed ones, anointed ones, those who are anointed. Those are the false Christs that Jesus warned us about. He says, many will come in my name, in the name of Jesus, saying, I am the anointed one, I am a Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And I need to remind you, it is an absolute fact that Benny Hinn is a false prophet. 
He is a fellow who prophesied the the death of Fidel Castro in the 1990s, and all of his prophecies. We've covered them here at Fighting for the Faith. They have pan, they have not proven to be true. So he is a false prophet, and Benny Hinn is one of the fellows who's making a lot of hay regarding the death of Billy Graham, claiming that he had prophetic insight from God. But he is not a prophet. Instead, he is one of the false prophets that Jesus warned us about. It says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is on his, in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For, listen again, third time, false Christs, false prophets will arise, and they will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go. If they say he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. So you get the idea. Not a pretty picture that Jesus paints, But you're going to note that the signs that we are told to look for, well, regarding false prophets, false teachers, false Christs, performing signs and wonders so as to uh, lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So Christ has told us all of this ahead of time. So we need to pay attention. The sign is not Billy Graham that we need to be afraid of, or not afraid, but paying attention to. The sign is, well, Benny Hinn, mm-hmm. and people like him on TBN. Now, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And you're going to note, if you've ever heard about the prophecies regarding what's called the great apostasy, 
That comes from this verse, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. For the word that's translated in the ESV as rebellion is the Greek word apostasia, unless the, the apostasia, the apostasy comes. So it's a rebellion against the word of God within the visible church, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called uh, object, uh, so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus himself will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Concerning the lawless one, concerning the coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you're going to note, the coming of the lawless lawless one is through the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders, which is exactly what we see Benny Hinn trafficking in, TBN, uh, the false apostles of the New Apostolic Reformation, and others. You know, so here's the thing. The death of Billy Graham is not the thing that Scripture tells us to look for. No. The thing that Scripture tells us to look for, both Jesus and his apostles, tell us to look for the false Christs, the false prophets, performing false signs and false wonders in, in deceiving people. And so the idea here is, is that you, you, the, the death of Billy Graham is not the sign you need to be looking for. The sign that you need to be looking for is the sign of false teachers like Benny Hinn. Yeah, misplaced indeed. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a couple of good sermons from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Stay tuned to Want to Miss Him. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance, we preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God 
and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. But we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. Let's do this right, though. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller presiding. First sermon is titled Jesus' First Sign. And Pastor Wolfmuller will be working through John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The uh, story, uh, the account, the historical narrative of the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. And then the second sermon will be from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, Radiant in His Divinity, a uh, text that pertains to Jesus' transfiguration. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Jesus' first sign. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, 
and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, it was, St. John tells us, at Cana, at a wedding, that Jesus accomplished his first sign, turning the water into wine. And his disciples saw it, and they believed in him. Now, there is a difference between a sign and a miracle. Every sign is a miracle, but the sign is given for the disciples and for us so that we would believe Jesus, that we would trust him, and that that we would follow him. Now, as we remember this text, this event in Cana, there are a lot of things for us to recall. We remember, first of all, that Jesus loves weddings. There's a beautiful line in the address that's at the beginning of the rite of holy matrimony that says, Our Lord Jesus blessed and honored marriage with His presence and first miracle at Cana in Galilee. That's that's fantastic. That Jesus was there blessing His estate of marriage. We also remember and we learn from this text what Jesus thinks about wine. (laughs) That's handy. I always think it's astonishing that that John goes back and notes not just that Jesus turned the water into wine, but that he turned the water into really good wine. (laughs) That's the conversation that happens between the the head steward who doesn't even know where all this wine came from in the bridegroom. And he says, you did it all in the wrong way. (laughs) We also hear in this text the last words of Mary, the last words recorded for us in the Scriptures. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, a number of times later, even at the foot of Jesus when he's dying on the cross and at the tomb, but she doesn't say anything. These are, these are the last words that we, that we hear come across her lips, and the words are this, whatever he says, do it. As if the Holy Spirit was anticipating that later in the church there would be those who would give too much to Mary, who would want to exalt her beyond her office as the mother of God, and make her into a co-redeemer, or something like this, that Mary would receive our prayers and would bless us. No, uh, here Mary points us to Christ. Whatever He says, do it. But I think the most helpful thing for us to meditate on this morning is to simply roll around this question. How is it that this man, Jesus, can turn water into wine? That is not normal. But Jesus is no normal man. In fact, Jesus is God and man, united eternally. Remember how we said, and say this in the Catechism, and confess it together, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. And this wonderful truth we recognize as the incarnation of Jesus, that He is in one person, two natures united, this great mystery of, of Christianity, the incarnation. Now, it is especially true that at Christmas time, we remember that Jesus is a man. In fact, he's a baby. He's born. He's born in, not, not just born, he's born in humble circumstances. He's laid in a manger. He's, he's taken to Egypt in order to save his life. And that's something for us to remember, that he needed saving. He He had to be brought somewhere else so that he wouldn't be killed. Jesus wasn't like Superman, that the bullets would bounce off of his chest. If the swords of the Roman soldiers would have reached him as a baby in Bethlehem, he would have died there. He has flesh and blood. He is immortal. He can 
he can uh, breathe his last. That's, in fact, the point. So that Christmas reminds us of the humanity of Jesus. And then we come along into Epiphany and especially remember his divinity. For example, the, uh, last week when we had the Epiphany service, we heard about the wise men who came and found the baby in the lap of his mother Mary and they fell down and they worshipped him. Or in the baptism of Jesus, when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Or when Jesus, the boy, was in the temple, and he said, didn't you know I must be about my Father's business? Next week, we have the transfiguration, where through the flesh of Jesus, his divinity will radiate with glory. It shows us that he is true God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. And that is also the case here today, when Jesus is turning the water into wine. How can he do this? Because he's God. He invented water. He invented grapes. He invented wine. Jesus is the one who spoke and light, dark, day and night, stars and planets, land and sea, all existed. Through him and in him are all things. He is the creator. And he shows it at Cana in Galilee. I heard someone say regarding the miracles of the Bible, and, and for some people to believe the miracles of the Scriptures is a difficulty. It's a stumbling block. They come across the texts that describe these miracles and they don't want to uh, spiritualize them or make them mean something different instead of reading them as miracles. And I heard someone's response to that was this. Once you get past the first page of the Bible, the rest is pretty easy. And it's true. And once we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that, that everything else is no problem. Helpful for us to consider that. That all the miracles in the Scripture, from the, from the greatest one that we have in the Gospel, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, that all of these, in fact, in one way or another, pale at the glory of the power of God manifest in creation. So there was no light and there was no dark. And Jesus spoke. And there was. There was no land or no sea, and Jesus spoke, and there was. There was no life, and Jesus spoke, and there was. There was no wine. Jesus spoke, and there was. So this sign confirms for us this great truth, that Jesus is God. Now, I've noticed... And I think this is true in talking with you guys as well, that you have the same tendency, but I'll at least speak for myself, that I have a tendency when meditating on this mystery that Jesus is both God and man, that one or the other kind of gets emphasized in my own mind. So, so it's difficult to think of Jesus being God and man. It's almost like we consider at one time, well, I, now I know that Jesus is God, strong, powerful, the creator and sustainer of all things, that he's utterly exceptional and unique. And then we consider him at another moment according to his humanity and even his humility, that he's weak and he's suffering and he's, and he's normal. And it's difficult to, to keep the two natures of Christ united in our own mind. Alfred Edersheim, this old theologian that I like to read, he pointed out that the Gospels are always fighting against this tendency to sort of separate the two natures of Christ and one of the ways that they do that is that they always, or almost always, 
uh, pair the two in the conversations of the miracles of Jesus. That, that you'll have a, a text that highlights the divinity of Christ, but right next to it will be a text or a mention of something that highlights His humanity or vice versa. So, for example, when Jesus calms the water, you remember that moments before He was asleep. So you see His divinity and His humanity all bound up together. Or immediately after the transfiguration of Jesus, He says to His disciples, now it's time that I would suffer. Now keep that, keep your eye out for that as you meditate on the Gospels and as you read through the Scriptures. That His divine nature and His human nature are always paired with one another. And we see it in the text today in the sign and miracle at Cana is that this miracle is comes right after a conversation between Jesus and His mom, Mary. So that just as clearly as the miracle of turning water to wine is a testimony to His divinity, having a mother is certainly testimony to His humanity. Jesus is God and man, bound up to one another in this singular person. Okay, Pastor, we got it, but why is it important? That's the question that we want to push on today. Why is it necessary? My two favorite pages in the Catechism are the pages that have these two questions. Why was it necessary for our Savior to be true man, and why was it necessary for our Savior to be true God? We should be able to answer those questions, and we'll go through the answers that the Catechism gives. They're really quite beautiful. First, the question... Why was it necessary for Jesus to be true man? Two reasons. First, so that he could take our place under God's law. It's what we call his active obedience. That he perfectly keeps all of God's commandment. He perfectly loves his neighbor. He perfectly honors his father and his mother. He is perfectly chaste and generous and content. He perfectly loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first reason. And the second reason it was necessary for Jesus to be true man is so that he could suffer and die. His passive obedience. Jesus needed a body to sacrifice. He needed blood to spill. He needed this flesh and blood so that there would be something for the soldiers to whip and to nail to the cross and to put in the grave and then to rise again to the Father's right hand. Jesus needed a body and blood so that He could feed them to you for the forgiveness of your sins. So why was it necessary for Jesus to be true man? So that He could fulfill God's law and so that He could suffer and die. And then... The sister question, why was it necessary for Jesus to be be true God? This also has two answers. First, so that his fulfilling of the law would be a sufficient ransom for all people. You remember that the perfection of Jesus, if he was only a man and not God, would only benefit himself. He might be saved, but what about the rest of us? But as God... As the Son of God, as the divine man, His righteousness is sufficient to cover all people. 1 Peter 1 says this, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. 
And second, the second answer, why was it necessary for Jesus to be true God? It's so that he might overcome death and the devil for us. Hebrews 2.14 is the best here. This is, I think, my favorite text. Since the children share in flesh and, um, and blood, he himself partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus was a man so that he could die, but he was God so that he could live again for you. To save you. To rescue you. To overcome your death. To take the fear of death out of the hands of the devil. He is God and man, all of it, for you. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven so that he might save us and be our Redeemer and our friend. So, dear saints, when Jesus is turning the water into wine, he is doing it as a sign for you. He's indicating that he is no ordinary man, but that he is God in the flesh. And this turning water into wine is only the beginning because he has better plans, bigger plans for you to turn for you sin into righteousness by the forgiveness of all of your sins. To turn for you death into life by his word that gives us faith and hope. To turn for you your grave into a bed where you rest peacefully awaiting the resurrection. To turn for you darkness into life, light. To turn unbelief into faith. To turn dread into courage. To turn fear into confidence and comfort. Jesus turning the water into wine is only the beginning. Because this one is God in your flesh, in your place, to give to you a joy that knows no end. So we rejoice. We rejoice that Jesus turned water into wine. We won't, at least we have not yet tasted this wine. We have to wait until the resurrection for that. But we have tasted the joy of his kingdom. The joy of the forgiveness of sins the confidence of His love for us. The one who says your sins are forgiven is God in your flesh, and He can do it. We beheld His sign, and we believed in Him. Amen. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Here's sermon number two, Jesus radiant in his divinity. Here we go. They were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, one of the theological dangers that we are faced with maybe even in our own minds and our own hearts, but we hear it a lot, is the idea that the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament is all gospel. In fact, when I first started to learn the difference between law and gospel, that's what I thought it was. Old Testament, law. New Testament, gospel. Old Testament, all rules and expectations. And in the New Testament, all of his promises and gifts. 
Old Testament, God is angry. New Testament, God is happy and nice. And he loves us. This sort of thing. I think I heard someone say that one time. The Old Testament, that's when God was mean. (laughs) And the New Testament is when he gets a lot nicer. Now, there are at least three problems with this kind of thinking, and we're going to walk through them in the sermon. In fact, that's what the sermon looks like today, to address this, and especially with the text. Now, the first problem with this kind of thinking is this. It divides God up, like there's two different gods. There's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, the mean God and the nice God. In the history of the church, there were theologies that in fact did this officially. The Gnostics did this. They had a dualistic idea of God. The, the, the creator God, which was the bad God, and then the transcendent God, which came to us from creation. And that snuck its way into the church with a guy named Marcion, uh, who started a little, I, sub, I think it was probably a cult, the Marcionites. And that's, the, that's what they thought, that the God of the Old Testament was the mean and wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament was the nice God. Here's, here's the one-sentence definition of Marcionism from Wikipedia. Marcion believed Jesus was the Savior sent by God. Paul, the apostle, was his chief apostle. But he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. The Marcionists believe that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate and lower entity than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. That's amazing. And I think, not only is it amazing that there was such a confusion of theology in the, in the Marcionites, but that, but that there are a lot of people that I think that could be the definition of their theology today. That God is, if you just were to ask them that God is mean and wrathful in the Old Testament, and that he's nice and loving in the New Testament. Now, Marcion was condemned in the year 144. But it's interesting to note that when the Lutherans started to talk about the distinction between law and gospel in the Reformation, that the Roman Catholic Church accused the Lutherans of being Marcionite, of rejecting the God of the Old Testament, or of dividing God up into the mean God and the new God. Now, this is certainly not true. We believe with all Christians that there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons eternal and united in the Godhead. And we believe that the entire Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, give us the history of this one true God and His work to save us. That the same God we read of in the Old Testament is the God also of the New Testament. So, problem one. We don't believe in two gods. Now, the second trouble idea that the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament is all gospel is that it misses oftentimes the preaching of the law in the New Testament. Jesus is understood to be the anything-goes kind of God, the tolerant and accepting God. You, you know this is what I'm talking about. You hear this kind of thing all the time. In most people's theological imagination, Jesus is more concerned with us being happy than he is with right and wrong. Now, the cure for this kind of thinking about the New Testament and this kind of thinking about Jesus is simply to read any page of the New Testament. (laughs) Because Jesus did not come to undo the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus' preaching of the law is even more intense than Moses' preaching of the law. Remember how Jesus did it? He said, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. The same thing with murder. You've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you call your brother a fool, if you hate your brother, then you're a murderer and you're, and you're guilty 
of the council, guilty even of hellfire. Jesus, it's true, preached love. But far from being a soft peddling of the law, the preaching of love is an intensification of the law because love demands everything, even our life for our neighbor. That we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this isn't a surprise to people, but Jesus, if you took all the teaching about hell in the Bible and you took all the doctrines of hell, the, the, the verses where where the prophets spoke of hell or where the apostles spoke of hell, and you put them all together, they would you would have a small little pile compared to the verses which Jesus spoke of hell. When you, This is a controversial topic, and so the doctrine of hell is often disputed, so we go and we look at the Scriptures, and almost every time we pull the Scriptures that speak of hell out, they are from the words of Jesus. Now, if we miss this doctrine, this preaching of Jesus, the holy God, the wrath of God, and the importance of the law, if we missed it in the teaching of Jesus, then we would see it in full display on the cross. Because before the cross is a display of the mercy of God, the cross is a display of God's wrath. Think of it like If sin was no big deal, if Jesus wasn't worried too much about our little mistakes, then what is he doing on the cross? Why does he have to suffer like that? Why does he have to go through the agony? Jesus prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But apparently, according to God and his holiness, it is not possible. He must suffer so that we see on the cross what we deserve, the full impact of our sin and our rebellion against God. So the New Testament also preaches God's law. Jesus is not a do-whatever-you-feel-like kind of God. And we Christians know God's law. And in fact, we delight in His law. We rejoice that the law shows us our sin and shows us where to repent. And we rejoice that the law no longer condemns us and that the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we begin to keep the law. So, the second problem of the thinking of that the Old Testament's all law and New Testament's all gospel we would miss the law in the New Testament, but we don't miss it. Now to the third thing. If we think of the Old Testament as all bad news and the New Testament as all good news, then we are at risk of missing the good news, the gospel, that's in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, just like the New Testament, preaches law and gospel, sin and forgiveness, condemnation and salvation. The theme of both the Old and the New Testaments is the same. It preaches the justification of sinners through the atoning work of the Messiah. I was reading yesterday Martin Luther's preface to the New Testament. And in his introduction to the New Testament, he has this list of quotations from the Old Testament. I thought, what are you doing, Luther? It's almost like he's introducing the Old Testament. But he's arguing, he's making an argument, and it is this that the New Testament is, in fact, not new. It is the fulfillment of the old. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would trample the head of the devil. And that promise went to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to David. The Lord promised that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, 
that he would go to Egypt, that he would live in Nazareth, that he would perform miracles, that he would heal the sick and raise the dead, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be rejected by the people, hung from a tree, pierced, but none of his bones would be broken that he would be laid in a new tomb, that he would rise on the third day, that he would ascend into heaven to sit on God's throne, David's throne, and that he would rule his heavenly kingdom with grace and mercy. All of these things are promised to us in the preaching of the prophets. And they are fulfilled in Christ. And not only did the prophets of the Old Testament preach all of these things about the Messiah, the Lord arranged all of the stuff in the Old Covenant in such a way that the Messiah would be preached every single day. The covenant of circumcision reminded the people that the promise of the gospel was in the seed of Abraham. Especially in the priesthood and in the sacrifices, the Lord was reminding the people that the Lord would accept the death of another in their place. Now, it seems to me like I've preached on this a lot of times lately, and you guys have to, especially now that I'm getting older, you have to warn me if I'm repeating myself, right? But we want to pin this thing down in our minds that when an Israelite would bring the sacrifice into the temple, the lamb or the goat or the bull, and would bring it to be sacrificed on the altar and would see that that lamb that didn't do anything wrong, would see that lamb burning and the smoke of that lamb going up to heaven, know that God is accepting the death of another in my place. The lamb didn't do anything wrong. I'm the sinner. And it should be me suffering from God's wrath. And yet the Lord in his mercy accepts the death of another. Now, all of this, the tabernacle and the priesthood and circumcision and all of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, especially the Passover and the Day of Atonement, but all of it was in one way or another preaching Christ. So the promises preached Christ, the worship preached Christ, but there's even more in the Old Testament. Most simply, we see Jesus showing up in the history of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus was not yet named Jesus, so we speak of him in this way as the Son of God, or the second person of the Holy Trinity. But but the Son of God was there when God created the world. When God said, let there be light, that was the Word of God. Jesus, before he was named Jesus, there. In the beginning was the Word, says John, creating, moving. All things came to be through Him. And the Gospel of John tells us even more. This is John chapter 1, verse 18. Now listen carefully to what John says in this verse. This is a great mystery, but it's really quite wonderful. John says, No one has seen God at any time. Think about that. No one has seen God at any time. He continues. The only begotten Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. No one has seen God, but the Son has made Him known. This means, according to John, that all of the times when people saw God in the Old Testament, they were seeing the Son of God. Jesus. So it was the Son of God who walked with with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the Son of God who visited Abraham and Sarah and said that she would be with child. It was the Son of God who was in the burning bush 
and spoke to Moses, the son of God who stood before Joshua and sent him into the promised land. It was the son who was in the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day that led the people. And I think, and take this for what it's worth, I can't prove it, but I think that when we read in the prophets these kind of things, that the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, or the word of the Lord came to Amos, or the word of the Lord came to Micah, or whoever, and we don't have any more details about that particular thing, that we should think simply of Jesus standing in front of the prophet talking to them. The word of the Lord. He is the word of the Lord. He is the word of God. So that when we see God in the Old Testament, we see the Son of God. Now there are a few exceptions to the rule. There are a few times in the Old Testament, just like there are a few times in the New Testament, three in the New Testament, that we do hear the voice of the Father and even see the Father in a vision. But every time that we hear God or see almost every time that the Son is there and in fact that they're speaking to one another or about one another. So in the vision of Daniel, we see the Ancient of Days, but we see the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Or in Psalm 2, we hear the conversation between the Father and the Son. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. But it's Jesus who tells us this, and so forth. Now what this means, and this I think is a change of thinking for most of us, is that when we hear God in the Old Testament, when we, when we read about the Lord or the Almighty, that our first thought is not of God the Father, but that these things refer to God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, before He was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. The Old Testament is about Jesus, not only, you see, not only in the promises and not only in the preaching of the priesthood and the tabernacle, but simply that Jesus was there. This is, this is Him doing all of these things. Now, with all of this in mind, I want us to consider the text put before this morning of the of the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, his brother John, up with him to the top of a high mountain, and there he is transfigured before them. The radiance of his divine nature shines through his flesh, his face, and even his clothes. And Moses and Elijah show up, and the cloud, and the voice of God the Father. Now, it's difficult to imagine more of the things of the Old Testament, the people and the themes, showing up together in one place. The mountain reminds us of Mount Sinai and Moses who went to the top of it. The glowing of Jesus reminds us of the face of Moses when he would go into the tabernacle. The cloud that comes, the glorious cloud that covers the mountain, reminds us of the cloud that covers Mount Sinai when Moses was there for 40 days and then went before the people as they wandered in the wilderness. And there, on top of the mountain with Jesus, are Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about his exodus, his departure. And Peter recognizes that in some way something Old Testamenty is going on here. And Peter says, let's build three tabernacles like Moses built in the wilderness. And then the voice of God comes from the bright cloud, quoting Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, this is stunning. 
if you took the 39 books of the Old Testament and you kind of condensed them down to a few sentences, you kind of pulled all of the stuff together and, and, and cold it and, and boiled it down, you would get something like this. A mountain with a cloud and a couple of prophets and a, and a, and a glowing, uh, fire and all of this. So that Jesus, far from rejecting the Old Testament, or throwing off the Old Testament. Jesus, in this way, is confirming the Old Testament and, in fact, showing that he is the embodiment of the Old Testament. So imagine it, if you can. Peter, James, and John see these things. They see Jesus radiating. And they see Moses and Elijah there, and they hear them talking. And they see the the bright cloud, and they say, let's build a tabernacle. And then they hear the voice of God booming from the cloud, and they fall down on their faces, and they cover their eyes like this because they're terrified, and they can't stand to see these things. And Jesus comes, and he touches them, and he says, don't be afraid. And they look up, and the text is emphatic. They saw no one but Jesus alone. Jesus only. Now, does this mean Jesus, like he normally looked, Jesus, as he had been familiar to them. Now, does this mean, does this mean that the divinity of Jesus has left him and is gone? No. His divinity was there all along. But it's hidden in this man, Christ. When they see Jesus only, does it mean God the Father is gone? No. He's there all along, but he is hidden in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Is the bright cloud of God's glory that filled the temple gone? No, it's, it was there all along. Jesus is the temple of God in which the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. But now it's hidden in Christ. Are Moses and Elijah gone? Jesus dwells with all of his saints always around him. And he not only is it dwells with his saints, but he is also the content of the prophet's preaching the fulfillment of their promises, and he himself is the greatest of all the prophets as he is the greatest priest and the greatest king. They're there, but they're hidden in Christ. So that when when Matthew in his gospel tells us that Peter and James and John saw only Jesus, he is telling us that all of the Old Testament, all the promises of God, all of the things pointing forward to Christ, that all of these things have found their object and their goal and their fulfillment in Christ. They are all hidden in Christ. Now, this is what Peter tells us when he gives the report of this incident later. Take a look at this epistle lesson. It's there in the bulletin, this lesson from uh, from Second Peter chapter 1, talking about the transfiguration. And he says, We were there on the mountain and we saw all these things. And then look at how he concludes. He says, When he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And by this voice, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter reports the transfiguration 
And then he makes the conclusion that all of the prophecies and all of the prophets, they were fulfilled. Their word was was confirmed. Telling us that all of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it, is about Jesus, the Messiah. This is really quite wonderful. That whenever we study the prophets, just like when we study the prophets or the the apostles, we are studying the words of Christ and rejoicing in him. So let's dislodge this idea. The Old Testament law and the New Testament is gospel. All of it preaches Christ. And something more. It It not only preaches the person of Christ but it preaches the work of Christ. That this Jesus is your Savior. That this Jesus is winning for you the forgiveness of your sins. Let's hear one more passage. This is the preaching of St. Peter again. This is in Acts chapter 10 when he's preaching to Cornelius' house and he concludes his sermon with these words. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So from front to back, prophets and apostles, all the way through the Bible, we have a book about Jesus who loves you. Jesus who died for you so that you might have life and salvation and the forgiveness of sins in his name. We might, on the Sunday of the Transfiguration, be awed by the glory of Jesus, but the good news is this, that he hides his glory. Can you imagine if the radiance that he demonstrated on the Mount of Transfiguration, if, if, he, if he had that same radiance in the garden when they came to arrest him? Or if he had that same glory when he stood before Pilate? Or if he let his divinity unleashed like that when he hung on the cross? He hides his glory. Because it's not the light that shines from his flesh that saves you, but the blood that flows from his wounds. Jesus is true God in the flesh, and he is there so that he can suffer and die. But dear saints, rejoice. You have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is God, your brother, who loves you, and forgives all your sins. To Him be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>